Welcome to the Heart Posture Podcast. I'm Michelle. And I'm Jazz. And we are two curious, ever-learning teachers who continually find a deeper connection with Jesus on our yoga mats. We believe Jesus was the ultimate yoga teacher. And while he may not have practiced handstands, he lived our favorite asana, the heart posture. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Okay, so we like to start off with some breath work. And if you want to join me, you can close your eyes or have a soft gaze. No matter where you are, you can begin to connect with your breath. First, observing how it's moving through you. What does your breath have to teach you about yourself? in this very moment. Observing with a non-judgmental lens and complete kindness and compassion. And then on your next inhale, breathing in, to the chest, filling up your ribs, filling up your belly, and then exhaling out of your belly, out of the ribs, out of the chest. So three-part breath, just like that, breathing in, chest, ribs, belly, exhale, belly, ribs, chest. One more time on your own. And then together a big cleansing breath in through the nose and out of your mouth. And you have arrived. Yay. Yay. We're here. We're here. <laughs> Yay. So we have a special guest today. Yeah. <laughs> Xandra Wagner, thank you so much for being here. I met you through the studio. You found us, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you found us. And then you connected me with the University of Laverne, and we were able to do the partnership with the yoga classes through the pandemic, which was mutually beneficial and really supported us during such a hard mm-hmm. time. And and then I got hired there to teach a yoga teacher training. You took it, and I was so nervous. <laughs> I was so I'm like, why is she taking this this course? <laughs> but I was also really excited because I had you know like a woman crush on you, <laughs> and because I'm just inspired by the work that you do. And so yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. We every class, especially our philosophy classes, I would just kind of wait I would turn it to her like what do you have to say <laughs> what do you think and I just hang on to every word so I'm really grateful for you Michelle thank you so much cool so um we would like to first just start off with you telling us about yourself your story mm-hmm. well I was born in Chicago Illinois and at a very young age my parents uh, moved out here to Laverne California and so I really grew up here in Laverne, you know, by these beautiful mountains and close to the desert and very close to the ocean and within that landscape. 
I would say the heart of of my my story is a faith community that I was raised in. Um, it's a, a small Protestant Christian tradition. It's called the Church of the Brethren. Uh, the name itself, uh, I wish it had a different name. Uh, the reference to brethren, although in our ears today and maybe always, uh, <laughs> is referencing men. Uh, but the intentionality behind it was a sense of siblings, that we are brothers and sisters and siblings with one another. Uh, and it's a very non-hierarchical uh, vision of community. So mm -hmm. that, that's the intention behind it, even though the name itself today is not representing that very well. Um, but anyway, this, this uh, tradition that I grew up in, it was a, a little bit outside of the mainstream culture. And so um, the, the key parts of that experience was growing up with a community who uh, put peacemaking and pacifism at the center of, of what it means to be a faithful person. Mm -hmm. So pacifism, this uh, critique on, on war and the use of violence. So at a very young age throughout my youth years, <laughs> um, I learned what it means to uh, do nonviolent resistance, what it means to do civil disobedience, what it means to protest. That is, I'm getting chills. <laughs> me too. And I'm picturing your like, younger self, and I'm like, that's why you are the way you are. Because yeah. <laughs> she has this energy yeah, about herself. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and is it your parents that were involved with this denomination? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. what did it look like to, to learn that at such a young age? Mm. So this was a, a version of, of Christianity, of spirituality, that was really about always putting faith in practice. This meant, um, what are you doing daily? How are you being in community? How are you serving and caring for the community? So it, it always looked like uh, these outward expressions of service, of engagement, of uh, caring about uh, peacemaking and caring about the work of justice. And really the people uh, that I looked, right, the, the older folks in my church that I observed, they were out there doing really amazing work in the community. And it was very instructive for me. Uh, so it was a very practical approach, right? Like, what would Jesus do? Oh, Jesus would do all these things I'm seeing mm -hmm. <laughs> that these people are doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. I am just wondering, like, what would my life look like if I had grown up in a denomination like that? Because mm -hmm. I grew up in a faith, in, like, in a church that taught faith as a very, like, personal thing, you know? And, like, your faith is about you and your relationship to Jesus. I feel like... I really missed out on that part. It wasn't until much later that I learned that, like, my relationship with Jesus is mirrored in my relationship with the community and people. Mm. So I'm just wondering, like, yeah. wow. And I'm thinking about, some, like, I felt like mine was kind of a combination of both. It was definitely ser service-oriented in the community, but it was also that as well, and how do you give that to others, but really was ev evangelistic, like, mm -hmm. and save them from, you know, the depths yeah. of hell. <laughs> does, does Church of the Brethren believe in that same concept? So really within the Church of the Brethren, there's a concept of uh, universalism. And this idea is there is nothing outside of God. 
So if we're using language of saving, there there is nothing that could ever be outside of. So there's nothing to be saved out of in terms of. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I just, I read this book as part of my premarital counseling. It's called The Zimzum of Love by Robin Kristen Bell. And they talk about how in the beginning, everything was God, like everything was God. And so for God to create, God had to create, like pull God's self back and to create space for everything because everything was God. And so it's just like firing in my brain when you say it like that, because and the Hebrew Bible says this, and it, it like describes it as zimzum, like this energy of God that is in everything is this zimzum, and for God to create anything else, God had to create space for that. And so, just this, how you said that about how there's nothing to be saved from because everything is God. Oh my gosh, I'm like, <laughs> there's just so many. Wow, yeah. I'm gonna have to sit with that for a little bit. Something uh, sometimes because of the. Uh, Christian Christian tradition I grew up in, I didn't necessarily grow up with a sense of uh, needing to accept Jesus into my life. It was just a, mm-hmm. that wasn't the language. Yeah. And so sometimes when uh, Christians ask, well, when did I accept Jesus into my life? And I, my, my response is, there's never a time when Jesus was not in my yeah, life. Yeah, totally. Because it was just about finding ways to mirror the example of Jesus. And yeah. so that's what what the energy was. Yeah. It's just a different way of approaching it. <sighs> it's what I'm hoping <laughs> for my kids. My husband and I were just talking about this yesterday and you know my kids were asking about heaven. And and so the language I like to use is well, people will believe this and say this and someday you'll hear it too. And this is what I believe. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do. And I was just telling my husband, I don't want them to think that heaven is this afterlife that we're trying to achieve to get to, whether we are doing it by works or we just have to say a simple prayer and that we're trying to get other people to get there too, you know, because that caused a lot of damage for me growing up and thinking Mm -hmm. that that was what it was all about and having to unlearn that has been still a process. Or even right now where I'm saying it, there's this inner voice that's going, right now, you're speaking against the truth. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get in trouble for saying what I'm saying. Um, he, Matt was asking, well, I'm sure Church of the Brethren believes the same thing. I'm like, I don't know. I didn't know. So this is great because I can go back and tell them, nope. <laughs> they don't They don't preach the same thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's this sense that the kingdom of God is here. It's present. Mm-hmm. Which is what Jesus, what Jesus literally said. Like the kingdom of heaven is here. It's among you now. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, this great pearl that's right here as close as your breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's so much less fear, it seems like, Yeah, mm-hmm. when you have that. Yeah. Less fear and guilt. Did mm-hmm. you struggle with fear and guilt growing up? Not not related to my spirituality. That, no. Yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't an aspect. This was a, a spirituality of listen to your voice listen to the voice of the community and somewhere in between there's wisdom mm-hmm. and and somewhere within your inner light inner divine fire that's within you and it's you have your own conscience your own sense of the world and it's wise and the community is also wise in its own way 
and together you can discern a life together that is something like heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. yeah. So beautiful. Wow. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up that way, and then what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so because I saw all these amazing people uh, who seemed to be doing really good work in the world, they were these religious people, and I thought, well, I'd like to <laughs> follow in that way. So I went to seminary where I could uh, study this more, uh, potentially become a, a minister. And along the way, I also found that I fell in love, and I fell in love with a woman. Mm-hmm. And then it was about uh, navigating that mm-hmm. within my life. And um, that's played a role, even though my local Church of the Brethren has been nothing but a loving space in that. The larger denomination, which I was very, very involved in, has a lot of different thoughts about that. And so um, it's been a journey with that. I, I also in seminary, I picked up a, a very clear feminist uh, perspective. And so my theology has been liberal. Um, I got into a lot of advocacy for women and feminism and LGBTQ advocacy. So all of that has shaped the way I also understand myself as living a faithful life. Mm. It's put me on the outside of some of my denomination, but I feel fully uh, centered yes. <laughs> in in all of that as a as a faithful response. So following seminary. I applied for ordination. Uh, When we apply for ordination, we write these uh, papers that kind of help share what our theology is about, our approach to ministry. Uh, I was very young and maybe even a little bit uh, naive and trusting, and I really put what I believed and thought and practiced in the world in those papers, uh, which then set off about a year and a half denominational firestorm over my ordination. So. And that's been a very important experience in my life. It taught me a lot about systems, systems of power and mm-hmm. systems of discrimination. So anyway, that's been a very shaping experience in the end and really because of my local uh, home church who really, really advocated for my ordination through that whole process when I was being accused of being a witch, a lesbian, oh, or a pagan, etc. Mm. So... They, they were so such a steady presence through that, and I was eventually granted my ordination. Uh, but it wasn't probably in the cards for me to find a church to be able to, to be a minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, just given the politics at the time, this is in the late 1990s or the mid-1990s, mm-hmm. I, I found a path through being a campus minister at a college in Kansas, And I was there for a few years. Um, I was living a more closeted life at that time. And if I wanted to be more out and open, I needed a different reality for my um, vocation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I put myself in a PhD program because I thought I can teach religion instead of being a practitioner where the ordination would be at risk because of my sexuality. Right. So... um, I went and got my PhD. I began working at the University of Laverne in the town I grew up in. And sorry, what is your PhD in? Ah, my PhD is in uh, religion 
and specifically in theology, ethics, and mm. culture. Cool. Yeah. Where, where'd you go? <laughs> oh, I went to Claremont Graduate School. Oh, oh cool. Nice. Yeah. Or I, I should say Claremont Graduate University. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I actually began teaching, which I enjoyed. I was doing some academic administration here at the university, but my heart was really in ministry. And a position opened up here where they wanted to re-envision. So this institution was begun by the Church of the Brethren, so it has that Christian heritage. And in the around 2010, the institution in its vision around diversity and pluralism wanted to take their campus ministry position and transition it to an interfaith chaplaincy. And I was working here teaching religion. And this position came open. And I've never applied for a position so earnestly. (laughs) Because I knew that here, the university didn't care if I was lesbian. Mm -hmm. And and it wouldn't be questioned in that same, same way in my denomination. I still have my ordination with my denomination. Not because it's by policy I shouldn't have my ordination. Still? Yeah. Wow. But just because of circumstances, I have it. And because I work at an institution that is historically connected with the Church of the Brethren, and this institution is behind me as their chaplain, uh, it's not really something that will be challenged by the wider denomination. Yeah. um, Again, systems of power. Yeah. Yeah. So so just to understand, are there different... So could you switch your ordination into a different denomination mm-hmm. that is open to it? Right. Yes, that could take place. It's always a process. Every denomination has their own process by which you go through ordination. So it could take a few years to do that. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I feel at odds sometimes with the wider denomination, still at heart, there's a, a theology that's really beautiful in the Church of the Brethren that is actually my heart. Yeah. So to to join another community would be to leave some really important aspects that are so shaped by that spirituality. So I'm if I'm going to have my ordination, I'm glad for it to be here. Yeah. Because it's congruent with my understanding. Yeah. And it feels like this whole thing has been like divinely put together in that you have found your local church here, the Church of the Brethren, that is very supportive. And then also that's connected to this university where you can teach. And so it does feel like, at least to me, that despite all everything that you've been through, it still has been like divinely, you know, planned for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm just very, very grateful that these threads came together the yeah. way they have. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Wow. So that's what you do now. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you wanted to share about? You know, in terms of my my why, I see my expression of faith in my actions. And it's there to support practices of peace and practices of justice and to affirm our interconnectedness and our interdependence. Like that's that's the why of my the choices I make and what I want to do in my life. Mm. Um, and this is one way um, that I can do that is through uh, this interfaith chaplaincy. And yeah, which has been a gift. So beautiful. Yeah. That's what we're called to do. Yeah. 
That's everybody's why, if, yeah. if you follow this, mm-hmm. this faith, you know. So what exactly is your, what do you, what does it actually look like mm-hmm. to be the interfaith chaplain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's everything from supporting students in whatever religious or non-religious worldview they, um, they have, supporting them to deepen it, um, to explore it. It's also providing a learning space for people to interact with worldviews that are not their own and to deepen their own perspective simply by being connected with people who are yeah. from a different worldview. Yeah. And we try to do things together. And uh, so sometimes it's learning about, but other times it's, what do you want to do together out of this shared experience, some shared values that we've discovered? It's not a way, it, we don't want to act as if those differences aren't there, but it's in the midst of those differences, what's shared and what kinds of things can we do together, uh, whether that's on campus or out in the community. Yeah, that's, I think that's uh, much of what it looks like. Okay. Just generally. Yeah. And I forgot for you to actually define it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what What yeah. is interfaith? Yeah. So, uh, and, and I'm really relying upon the whole network of the interfaith community out there for my definition. So this isn't yeah. my own personal definition, but it's um, how I understand it. So, and I like to think of it as like interfaith cooperation. Mm-hmm. It's a way of orienting ourselves around religious, spiritual, and secular worldviews. And that there are some key aspects of, of that first and three, three key aspects. The first is respect for identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, what this means, because sometimes the word respect can just, uh, right. may not mm-hmm. have a lot of behind <laughs> it. So what do I mean by respect? <clears throat> it means the right to form our own religious or non-religious worldviews, to express them freely, and to expect some reasonable accommodations to be able to live out those convictions and practices. Mm-hmm. And one important part for me about this respect, so sometimes in interfaith work, we, we can uh, reduce our differences to a mountaintop imagery, like all of the traditions out there really just going up the same mountain with just different paths. From my understanding, the way to truly have respect for our multiple worldview identities is that we really understand these are different mountains and to actually feel the differences and still find ways to build bridges and connect. Yeah. Oh, I love that visual of the different mountains and then the bridges between the mountains connecting. So that's one aspect. A second aspect of interfaith cooperation is uh, developing mutually inspiring relationships so that I am actually being inspired by the religious or non-religious world that you love and practice. Like, uh, to, to be inspired by what inspires you <laughs> and see it as beautiful and lovely. Um, and, and even to want to incorporate maybe some of that loveliness into my life. Hmm. Uh, that requires being face-to-face, heart-to-heart, and mm-hmm. actually getting to know the person. Yeah. And so much of the time, people don't even get to that part because yeah. fear mm-hmm. and judgment is holding them back from even getting there. Yeah. 
And, and it is building some capacity. This work means we have to build some capacity for um, the practice of pluralism. And what I mean by pluralism, so diversity is a fact, okay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But pluralism is this very active engagement with difference. And, and we have to build our capacity for that to be able to sit in the discomfort of that difference so that, and, and as we build that capacity, then there's almost an out-breath mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, oh, and look at this shared thing yeah. that we, we actually do value. But not to skip to that too quickly, because then we'll miss the richness of that diversity, or we may cover it over mm. out of our desire or discomfort, or our, out of our desire to not feel that discomfort. Do you experience that with your students? Do you see them uncomfortable? Yeah, absolutely. So here, here's the interesting thing about uh, the interfaith world and how people hear it. So when we think of religious diversity and interfaith work, in some ways there's almost a, there can be a disarming thing about that because here's people who are gathering around their highest principles, right, of love and compassion and service and so we kind of think, oh, it, this might be just feel good, like come into this space and feel good. We'll all sort of um, show our love for one another. And I, I actually appreciate the fact that at some level, interfaith does communicate that. Mm-hmm. Like this is about building bridges and we're going to share our best principles with one another, our best practices. And at the same time, there really is difficulty with these differences. Mm-hmm. And the moment that a couple students realize they've really just expressed two very different things. There's this <gasps> moment. Mm-hmm. And, and I am so glad when I get to be there in that presence, because then I can help facilitate and help them realize, oh, we can manage this. Mm-hmm. And it's building that capacity. And what I've really found is that capacity to stick with it, to um, sit with one's discomfort, it translates into other areas that are actually much more difficult than interfaith work, Mm. like conversations we need to have around race and gender and sexual orientation. I I really have this strong belief that interfaith work can help build capacities for these other very difficult spaces. Yeah. (sighs) I have so many chills. I know, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about too, like, so in those moments you said that you're really glad that you get to to be there around them when that's happening. Could you like share a little bit of what does that actually look like on maybe an example of like, what would it, do they get confrontational or is it just like one person sitting with it? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, these aren't dramatic moments. Okay. They're like small moments of paying attention that, Someone, maybe someone has just made an assumption that all people, well, we all think like this, or of course we should do it this way. And then someone else, there's this pause where someone's trying to find space to say, but I I actually can't eat that food or I, I don't practice in that way. I think in those moments, it's, I think for me, it's, oh, let's pause for a second Because what I don't want in that circumstance is to trigger a lot of shame or guilt. Mm -hmm. It's always a learning space. And so it's an invitation to the person that maybe said something that was just out of ignorance or insensitivity or just not knowing 
to be able to say, say more about what, what you're thinking, where does that come from, so that they can start to learn that their perspective is grounded somewhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it has a history, a context, a social context around it. And then to be able to say it to the other person that has just felt that slight <clears throat> moment to share why they do or don't believe or practice in a certain way and create a space that's safe enough to have that conversation and even a moment where it's safe enough where a person could say, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. And so that there could be generosity in that space. I wish I I had more to say about that. That was a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I I was picturing it all (laughs) happening. And I was thinking about just connecting with what you just shared, that usually it's grounded somewhere else, Mm -hmm. and that this work actually helps with gender and race and sexual identity, etc., And so it's modeling how you have those conversations too, what you just said. Can we hear each other? Can we offer generosity and grace? Mm -hmm. And just remember that communicating is trying to seek to understand the other person, not just for you to be heard too. Yeah. 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 And and sometimes it, it may take quite some time because being able to then unpack maybe someone who's from a more dominant religious tradition has said something that because they're they're thinking that the water they swim in, in, in is everyone's water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it might take some time to really unpack that. So it could really lead someone down a brand new pathway of being able to see the actual water they swim in mm-hmm. that, that requires us to look at histories of oppression and histories of privilege. Uh, so it's not necessarily a, it, maybe it might not happen just in that moment, but it helps to start a process that then I think really does support these other conversations in the long run. Been swimming in that water for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, a reason why interfaith cooperation matters is it's a practice for how we can achieve pluralism, that active engagement with Diversity doesn't depend on shared views. We can disagree Mm. and still build bridges, build relationships, learn about each other, and also do common things together around Mm. shared interests, right? We have these shared interests in our communities around education, around healthcare, around the environment. So can we stick, stick together long enough in this conversation or in this conflict to figure out what we can do. Yeah, that's so so good. I was talking to one of my friends who is really active in, she's active in the community. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she's bringing to my attention, because now her child is in elementary school, is the food that our kids are eating. Mm-hmm. And my son eats the free lunch. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they're terrible. <laughs> and so she, but her point was, she, she said, this is a shared interest. It doesn't matter what side of politics you're on. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to care about what the kids are eating. And this is a good opportunity to, to build that mm-hmm. connection and to bring, to yeah, make those bridges. So like, how can we all work towards this common goal mm-hmm. to give our kids the best quality food that they can have? Yes. And of course that, like I'm just uh, going down this beautiful rabbit hole just with that example 
Right. So a common interest around healthy food, which then as people from a variety of perspectives and worldviews are coming together around that, then there will be a discovery of other things Mm -hmm. that pull us apart around food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That may be about certain dietary practices Mm -hmm. that are deeply held. And and that's potentially something to pull us apart. So then it's another opportunity to practice (laughs) building bridges and creating understanding between each other. So it's it. This is not easy work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm a picture it all happened. Uh, but it's in the sticking with it. There will be some shared values, the shared doing of human life, mm. <laughs> the shared need to have healthy and prosperous lives. Right, and so not an easy road at all. But what other road do we have? Right. (laughs) Well, and then we also have to acknowledge that in order to even get there, we'd have to have a shared interest and believe that all people are worthy of having that healthy, prosperous life. Exactly. Everybody, no matter what their background is. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've had plenty of conversations with people who say that at the end of the day, your practice of interfaith and what you do is wrong or it's bad because there's only one truth. And so I'm wondering what those conversations and responses look like from you. So I I would have to say for the most part in our United States context, those that are that are most critical of interfaith work as maybe being bad or wrong are really going to be uh, conservative or evangelical Christians. And in a lot of ways, it's it's because, and I don't I don't say this as a gotcha or a, mm-hmm. I, I say this because historically those perspectives have had a a dominant perspective in our culture, and so it's safe to be able to say. There's one truth, and it's ours, mm-hmm. right? But we are a also a country of people who come from lots of different places. And so if someone is from a minority tradition, it's more safe to enter and make connections in the interfaith community. So the Muslim community wants to be part of um, the interfaith structure. Jewish communities want to be part of an interfaith structure. They want to connect. And it's about just out of pure safety, it's important to open oneself up to relationships across difference. And so people who often are are critical of interfaith perspectives are being involved. The culture says you don't have to be. Um, so that's one piece I, I mm-hmm. it's important to me to name so that we understand that. And I think there's other ways to also talk about it. I, I think I'd like to talk with people that there are, uh, we can think of there's a capital T truth and there are lowercase truths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that maybe a more humble approach is to recognize that you carry um, some truths that are set within a tradition, a culture, a history, and there's wisdom there. And maybe discover that truth in relationship to other worldviews and truths that are, that are out there. Like it's an invitation to go there. One other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is what's so fascinating to me is, well, it's possible that, say, someone from 
one tradition starts learning about a whole bunch of other traditions and sort of formally makes a shift to another tradition. This is so uncommon. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what typically happens is an interfaith experience allows you to deepen the perspective and worldview you've grown up in. Like it expands it, it deepens it, it clarifies it. Um, it's very unusual for people to just up and toss out their cultural, spiritual worldview. Yeah. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it's very important that it happens because mm-hmm. maybe it's an abusive or violent perspective and someone needs to step outside of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I really want to value interfaith relationships for the way in which it, it helps us even clarify and deepen our own tradition. Yeah. 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 Like even for both of us, understanding yoga more and more and even Hinduism has deepened our faith as well. Yeah. And totally. Like what you said, the filtering and the clarifying. So yes. it's so, it's so true for us at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask though, I have this like distaste when we say religion Mm-hmm. versus like when you were saying tradition right now, like that sounds so much more like, ah, don't forget. but maybe it's just my own mm-hmm. experience with it. And so, yeah, can, like, mm-hmm. can you define religion or, you know, or earlier you even said even people who don't have religion, like who are non-religious, can we value that, their experience too? Yeah. Well, I think what you're raising, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with these words that, especially the word religion, Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of religion as something is, is called religion or religious because there is a history, a culture, and an organization around it. And so because religious organizations have been both beautiful and terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout human history, we should have a very complicated relationship with that word. Yeah, um, because the structure, the organization has done great harm, and those structures have also done great good, right? I, I really do care for institutions. Institutions are important in our human interactions, like institutions like education and healthcare and government. Like these are important institutions, and we want them to be healthy and actually serve everyone. Mm-hmm. So I want religious organizations, religious communities to be healthy and good contributors to society. Wow. Yeah. Right. And so, but we all know that any of these institutions, including religious communities and organizations can do great harm. So I personally think it's, think your discomfort with the word makes a lot of sense and is actually a helpful perspective around it. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe even, I, I think I understand why maybe the word Tradition helps it be less institutional, yeah. helps it be less uh, formalized, right? Because within a tradition, there's all kinds of perspectives and philosophies and practices. Mm-hmm. And there's a little more space and freedom in that word, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you answered that so well and, yeah, clarified what mm-hmm. I was curious about. Mm-hmm. So what role has yoga mm-hmm played in your life and is in regards to all of this mm-hmm. so I like I was saying earlier that the tradition I grew up in was very oriented around faith and action the doing part of, of one's spiritual practice 
And I think uh, later in my life, I have been discovering the more uh, inner side of one's spiritual life. And yoga is a part of that story for me. So uh, the yoga philosophy, yoga practices for me are about uh, centering and grounding. It's this connection with this inner light, my inner voice. And because of that, so Maya Angelou, she talks about courage and that courage is not something we're born with. It's something that we build over time by taking risks, small risks, that then grow into larger risks. And it takes some effort and spiritual exertion to be a person of courage. That way you grow it over time, right? For me, there's something about these inner practices, this inner work for which yoga has been a key aspect for me, it's building scaffolding internally for life's challenges, whatever they may be. And so the actual practice of yoga asanas, right, this physical experience in your body of a challenging pose or a stretch that is challenging, it's building something internally mm-hmm. that for me is very spiritually important. Yeah, that's sort of the root of what's been very key for me of how it plays a role in my life. I love how you just connected that because <laughs> I think over the past year, I've like tr- really tried to move away from challenging yoga asanas. But I love that connection between like that practice of courage on your mat and you know how that translates off of our mat too and how it could just this practice could start with just like attempting to like I just taught hand or yeah headstands on in my vinyasa class on Wednesday and I was saying how like the most challenging part of any inversion is just getting the top of your head to the mat Mm -hmm. because it's that change in perspective and like knowing that you're turning upside down that's the hardest part you know something I'm so uh, appreciating the fact that you're you're saying you're sort of shifting your yoga the, the way you're um, maybe teaching or practicing yoga or away from those most challenging poses, and I love that you're saying that because in some respects, so I'm not someone who is a like I'm general yoga. I'm all about general yoga. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about, like those are that's actually the yoga I practice. Yeah, more so. And strangely, like practicing mountain pose is this incredibly mm-hmm. challenging pose that your whole body's engaged and there's got to be so much focus yeah. that every aspect of your body is finding some alignment and softness and strength and yeah. these polar opposites of uh, what we're doing with our body. And in some way, in this simpleness of that pose, there is... I've just put myself through a challenge that supports me in some way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because the challenge could be, for me, was always like going upside down wasn't the challenge. Uh The challenge is is slowing down, doing the gentle stuff. Totally. And like you said, Tadasana. Mm -hmm. You know, so the challenge is there for everybody. Yeah. And that's what's so beautiful about Mm -hmm. is that you're doing that scaffolding effect from the inside out. And then you have to navigate what is the challenge for me? Right. Where is the opportunity That's so to, important. to take risks? Yeah. Because not everyone needs to be challenged by vinyasa. Like you and yeah. I, when we started, 
we would have been challenged more by yin. Exactly. <laughs> right. Or or shavasana. Like yeah. so many of my students like that's the challenging part. Like, yeah. hey, you want me to just lay here for five minutes? I can't check my phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Anything you want to add to that? So there's a, a story in the Hebrew text uh, in First Kings. It's about the prophet Elijah. Mm. It's and one of my favorites. He, right, he has gotten to this place of, um, he's at a crisis point for himself in life. And he's basically saying, um, I might as well die. And he is led to go out from this cave that he's Mm -hmm. in and go look out into the world. And he's looking somewhere for God. And God is not in the storm, but it's a massive storm. And there's a massive earthquake. So like just this storm that's everywhere. And ultimately... He finds God in this still, small voice, inside, in the silence. Mm. And so for me, yoga is about finding that still, small voice, that God within, that inner fire. And it's I, I put that alongside sort of another image from the Hebrew text that's in uh, Jeremiah. It's a beautiful poem about a tree being planted by the water. Mm Mm-hmm. And the roots are deep, so that even at the time of drought, the leaves are green, yeah. fruit can still be there, right? And so there's a, a centering, a grounding down, a potential to root oneself in their most true self um, through the practices of yoga that then supports, for me, my my faith, my action out, yeah. out in the world. I get to have roots deep (laughs) Mm. Um, and it's a strategy for me yoga provides that strategy and philosophy for the deep roots Mm -hmm. for me to then live out my faith tradition that is about living out the example of jesus out Mm -hmm. in the world uh, which is can be hard and throws you off course and it's stormy and all of those things Mm -hmm. but yoga is the one that supports that steadiness Mm -hmm. For me, oh, I could say more of the ways I, I connect it, but that's the that's the main one. It's yeah. so good. I know you guys, you can't <laughs> see me job. here, but I'm like my hand <laughs> yeah. is resting on my hand, and I'm just like head tilt. <laughs> just like, like, I can really do this for hours. Yeah, just, just <laughs> gazing lovingly. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. I love the imagery of the, I mean, the deeply rooted roots, mm-hmm. despite yeah. the drought that you're in, mm-hmm. yeah. and how you said yoga is a strategy and a philosophy that supports your faith mm-hmm. and, and the tradition that you come from mm-hmm. and to live out what Jesus wanted us to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's what we said in like one of our first episodes too, is mm-hmm. that yoga has allowed us to, to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, another piece, there's something about the actual practice of yoga flow. The, so vinyasas are something that is a flow of movement from one pose to the next that is sort of my metaphorical bodily experience of praying without CC. Mm. <sighs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. it, it supports my understanding of how daily life is a prayer. Yeah. And it's it's not this necessarily this separate thing, but there's something about actually getting to move with my body 
that reminds me of the unceasingness of my connection. <laughs> it's so it's so wonderful because yeah. that's one reason why people of at least the Christian background mm-hmm. that I've heard not want to come to this practice is because they're afraid that doing these shapes are mm. worshiping specific idols. Mm. And here you are reaffirming that it's really your heart posture behind it. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful picture to offer yeah. is that, oh, can you actually look at these shapes of you praying without ceasing? That's yeah. a bodily expression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. At the at the beginning of all my classes, I'm sure you've heard that I, I always do some type of statement and it always ends with may this be prayer um prayer in motion. Wait, sorry, now I'm forgetting. But I always say, May this be a moving meditation and prayer in motion. Yeah. Like mm. that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's something about the body postures, you know, in our um highly commodified world. Yoga can be seen as a, I don't know, an expression of the these bodies that have been commodified. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not probably saying this very well, but the postures are just in service of steadiness inside. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. can we find that breath in the struggle? And it's so supportive. It, and so we use our limbs and our body in order to create a context where it's a little bit challenging or a, so that we can learn to breathe. Yeah, to <laughs> totally. Yeah. It all comes back to the breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. I know. <laughs> so what's our practice this week? We didn't even talk about it. I guess, I mean, first you have to notice your circle and like the people that you talk to, right? To see in what pool you're swimming. Do you see your pool as an ocean or do you recognize that your pool is just a pool Mm -hmm. and there are other pools? So maybe first recognizing your circle of family and friends and seeing like who makes up that circle. And if there's anyone that you can create or maybe even just start to build a relationship with or learn more about that maybe swims in a different pool. Yeah. Beautiful. Cool. Well, I'm so grateful <laughs> to have had this conversation. I'm like, can we do this? Again? I know. I want to have like, there's like, I want to have three more like whole dedicated conversations. So we want to end with we. I love Brene Brown. Jasmine, you love Brene Brown too, right? Who doesn't love okay. Brene Brown? <laughs> it's a red Brown. flag if you don't love Brene Brown. I think so. We have our own rapid fire questions for the end, and so yeah, we're just gonna say them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So what is your favorite asana? Hands down, tree pose. Mm-hmm. I just love tree pose because it it invites me to find steadiness. It invites me, if I put my hands way out in, you know, out in tree, uh, that I feel strong and happy. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's both happy and steadiness. Cool. Favorite church song as a kid? All right, so we had a folk singer in uh, our course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in my denomination, uh, we had a folk singer, and his name is Andy Murray. Mm-hmm. No one but any, you know, only a Church of the Brethren kid would know this. <laughs> but he had this song called, What Can One Person Do? Mm. And it said this, what can one person do is a very good question. Figure it out without a doubt. One person at a time does it all. And I loved this song. Oh, 
I know. <laughs> chills. So beautiful. Okay, what are you currently reading or listening to? Or both? Okay, so um, I am listening to Br- Brene Brown podcast. <laughs> Just true. <laughs> um, and I am currently reading a book, a novel by Richard Powers called The Overstory, where the trees are the main characters. Oh my gosh. Okay, so uh, you love trees. I know. <laughs> I love to do a whole so other much. episode on trees. I know. I hear whatever this book is about. Okay, have you, <laughs> do you ever listen to the Bible Project podcast? No. Okay, they have this series and it's it's about trees in the Bible. And like the first episode is humans are dot 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 trees question mark. And it talks about how Genesis 1 and 2 sets up this whole imagery and narrative of humans throughout the bible being trees mm. and like oh my gosh it is so cool you gotta oh. listen to it oh i love that and you know this past week when we had these amazing mm. windstorms and this local park just had massive old yeah. trees that fell and i have just felt this whole week the blessing of trees their yeah. steadiness their beauty, their whatever, you know, there's so much there in trees. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I was curious, I don't know, I don't know much about it, but I was wondering, because you know, that Coons Park, there are so many trees there. And I want to say maybe like six fell. Do you know? Maybe more like 15. Was it 15? Okay. But there's still so many left standing. And I was thinking, well, maybe these other trees, you know, they share nutrients. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they sacrificed and like were sending their nutrients to these other trees, <sighs> you know, and that's why they had to fall. You know, oh my gosh, yeah. okay, that's, that's gonna do. make me cry. Like that's what's gonna do it. <laughs> I know. I've been trying not to cry. I've been on break all morning. <laughs> okay, what is your hype song? So um, probably between I got a feeling. By Black Eyed Peas, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> um, or On Top of the World by Imagine Dragons. Oh, mm. Both really, yeah, good songs. choices. Yeah, happy songs. <laughs> I know. I love that yours are happy. They would be happy. Yeah. I feel like our hype songs were like, Rah! yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Daily ritual. Do you have a daily ritual? So I like the thought of daily rituals. Okay, but I don't necessarily stick to it. Okay. in a pattern but there are things that I do every day I always read and I always journal hmm. and my with my journaling I prefer if it's either in the middle in the beginning of the day uh, what am I grateful for at the end of the day what am I uh, grateful for from that day anyway but I do journal pretty constantly I eat colorful food hmm. <laughs> I uh, walk with my dog I do some kind of something for my body, so stretching or yoga, and I try to replay my day at the end of the day to set myself up well for the next day. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. So good. Okay. Your go-to book of the Bible. So definitely any of the Gospels for Jesus's wisdom Mm -hmm. and the book of James. I love James. <laughs> it's, it's such a great perspective around, right, being doers mm-hmm. of the word. We live out our faith through the works. That's just super con- congruent with my way of being in the world. Okay, finally, your favorite snack. My favorite snack is a ginger cookie Ooh. dipped 
in hot chamomile tea. Oh. Is it the ginger cookies from Trader Joe's? Yes. I love those. Oh my gosh, they're so good. I have to try them. I haven't tried them. And it's even best to put those cookies in the freezer, take three out. This is my nightly ritual. Okay, oh take gosh. three ginger cookies out of the freezer, dip them in my hot chamomile tea. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm going to try that. I know. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so, much. so much. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah. Uh-huh. We really appreciate you doing this with us and everything that you're doing for our yeah. community. Yeah. It's going to leave such a ripple effect for so many. So thank you. I just feel like so honored to even be at this table with you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an honor to be at your <laughs> table. I, I love what... Well, I, I know Michelle better in her work and Jasmine I get have gotten to practice with you yeah Um, but what I know is um, I have deep deep respect of what the two of you do and um, so it's my honor to be here thank you Mm, thank you thank you (laughs) so may we all be open to new ways of seeing ourselves the world and our faith cool yay next time yay